right now, we've seen how matters of human welfare in a free society should only stem from the legal institution of the family and private insurance arrangements. And we've seen now how that that's the way America used to be. And people didn't starve because of it. So we asked the question, why did it change? Why the monumental change from freedom to coercion, from free markets to taxation and fines, from families and parents to a paternal state? Why the change? Well, we've already mentioned in our discussion of education the rise of the secular Unitarian belief system, and with that, the rise of the belief in a remedial social institution scheme. Okay, we had the asylums, the prisons, the almshouse, the public schools, we've talked about all of those, aimed at improving the individual through elites and experts controlling their environments. And with this came the constant cry for more government power to impose these institutions as necessary, as the elites saw necessary. And then as those institutions failed over and over, we saw the continual cry for more and more money, larger budgets and whatnot. Okay, so we talked about all of that and the anti-Christian worldview on which it's based. Okay, what this shows is that there was already a mentality at work among a small self-dubbed elite who believed in using government con control to improve, as they saw it, uh, mankind as a collectivist society. And this is in America as early as the 1830s with Horace Mann and some others, and it only grew from there. So two important things, among others, would eventually happen that would open the floodgates to this type of thinking, especially among government officials. The first was the creation of the first modern social welfare state in Europe under Otto von Bismarck and in Germany, Prussia in 1883, and the precedent that that set for everything else. Now, while Bismarck was not necessarily a hero on American soil, the uh, same viewpoint was systematized in America a decade later when a sociologist named Lester Frank Ward revolutionized the field of sociology with his work entitled Dynamic Sociology. A massive 1,200-page book uh, provided a completely new version of social Darwinism that demanded a paternal state, and the view eventually swept American academia and politics. And when it came time later to implement Ward's views on a massive scale, the propagandists that were trying to do it immediately went right back to Bismarck as a defense of their views. So I want to talk about these two things briefly. First, let's talk about uh, what happened in Prussia under His Majesty the Chancellor Otto von Bismarck. Now, as I said, his welfare program began in 1883. In Europe, obviously, there were already many socialist and communist movements. The Communist Manifesto from Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, Engels had been published already in the German language in 1848. And there were certainly uh, many cells of socialist and communist thinking at the time, political groups. And the irony is that Bismarck installed his systems allegedly as a defense against the growing demands of socialists and communists, all the while arguing that his system was in fact not socialism, but simply welfare, or as he put it later, practical Christianity legally demonstrated. Okay, many, Christ, many uh, critics of of Bismarck's system pointed out the obvious that Bismarck's measures to impose social insurance 
uh, and health insurance via the state power, state taxation, up to a third of one's income, by the way, was itself socialism, the very socialism he was claiming to combat. And so he gave a speech in defense of his measures, brandishing his label practical Christianity. And he used that label very, very often uh, and, and in many, many uh, venues. A famous law professor, or I'm sorry, a history professor at Harvard in the early 20th century uh, pointed out this, what he noted as hypocrisy, and wrote this, quote, Bismarck was the sworn enemy of the Socialist Party. He attempted to destroy it, root and branch, yet through the nationalization of railways and the obligatory insurance of workmen, he infused more socialism into Germany, into German legislation, than any other statesman before him. End of quote. So eventually Bismarck himself would refer to his practical Christianity, and we find this out from one of his internal aides, Morris Bush. He referred to his practical Christianity as, quote, our state socialism which, of course, everyone already knew. And since everyone already knew this, they also knew it was really no defense against the more revolutionary socialists and communists. Instead of stopping the trend, it put it in motion and, in fact, increased it. And even worse, it turned the very people who opposed it into dependence upon the system. Okay? And there was no way out after that. Now, interestingly, one of the guys who saw the effects of this very clearly was perhaps the most famous biographer of Adolf Hitler, William Shirer. And in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, he writes about this, and I'm going to quote him at length. He says, To combat socialism, Bismarck put through, between 1883 and 1889, a program for social security far beyond anything known in other countries. It included compulsory insurance for workers against old age, sickness, accident, and incapacity. And though organized by the state, it was financed by employers and employees. Does that sound familiar? It cannot be said uh, that it stopped the rise of social democrats or the trade unions, but it did have a profound influence on the working class in that it gradually made them value security over political freedom and caused them to see in the state, however conservative, a benefactor and a protector. And Shire goes on to say this, Hitler, as we shall see, took full advantage of this state of mind. In this, as in other matters, he learned much from Bismarck. Quote, I studied Bismarck's socialist legislation, Hitler remarks in Mein Kampf, in its intention, struggle, and success. So, Bismarck's system became the model for Hitler, but not only for Hitler, it became the model for welfare states all over the world. Politicians, activists, whoever else was interested in it studied Bismarck's laws, its methods, how he got it passed, and especially they studied the rhetoric and the euphemisms that were used to sell it to the public. Uh, for example, in this country, uh, the taxes used to fund Social Security have been from day one not called taxes, but contributions by design. It's not a tax, it's a contribution. Just as Bismarck said it's not socialism, it's Christianity. Okay? These are word games used to deceive people, but it's common practice. And when Bismarck-style programs finally got a firm foothold in America, 
in the 1930s under FDR's so-called New Deal, it was openly admitted that Bismarck was the model. And one of the biographers for FDR, who also happened to be a propagandist for his re-election campaign, stated this openly. He said this, Social Security is not a new idea. Other nations of the world are far ahead of the United States in battling this important economic problem. Von Bismarck, the founder of the German Empire, nearly 50 years ago launched a plan for Social Security. The Iron Chancellor, who could hardly be called the precursor of radicalism, was only putting into effect sentiments that had been uttered by statesmen before him. Okay, so this open acknowledgement uh, remains, even today, uh, on the Social Security Administration's website. And, of course, you can use a simple Google search to go find that. Uh, Social Security Administration, Von Bismarck, you'll find it easily. Okay, so that was the influence of Bismarck. It was very widespread. It was unprecedented. But secondly, there was the influence of a new version of social Darwinism promoted, as I said, by Lester Frank Ward. His big book, Dynamic Sociology, published in America in the same year Bismarck passed his first social uh, insurance measures. Now, up until Ward, social Darwinists simply had taken Darwin's uh, biological theory of natural selection and implied it, uh, applied it to the marketplace and, and also to the political sphere. Uh, but in particular, they took the idea of the survival of the fittest. And that was used by men like Herbert Spencer in England and in America, there was William Graham Sumner. Uh, and they used it to argue for laissez-faire, what we would call free market capitalism. Uh, competition should rule the day. There should be no artificial leveling of results. The winners win, the losers lose, period. Okay, the fittest survive and the unfittest don't. It's that simple. And that's nature. And we shouldn't try to change it because that's natural. It's evolution. Now, while that philosophy will resonate in general with most lovers of free markets, it had the unfortunate quality of sounding harsh and lacking charity and, of course, simply makes for bad PR. And so the field was ripe for some progressive to come along with a system that sounded more like it had everyone's best interest in heart, not just that of the fittest. And that's exactly what Ward did. Ward's theory said, sure, society does evolve just like Darwin thought, uh, taught of biological life anyway, but there was one important qualifier. With the evolution of man and his complex brain and his ability to plan and to reflect and to reason, this has brought about a fundamental change in the nature of evolution. No more is it to be blind forces fighting amongst each other, but man has now been endowed with, uh, by evolution with the status of a director or a planner of evolution. So now instead of ramming and trampling each other and, and outright competition, man is to build institutions for governing and improving the race, and by that means to improve society and, and the species in general. Okay, well this theory was just exactly what the reforming elites and the progressives wanted to hear. I mean, they had been teaching this since the 1830s, that they themselves were the reformers and directors of society. And now Ward had come along and provided them just the academic justification they wanted for their actions. 
and it was, wasn't very long that his theory dominated the field of sociology, academic curricula, and he was made the first president of the American Sociological Association. His line of thinking then began to produce an entire whole new generation of academics and political leaders who believed in progressive intervention in society via government power. There was an immediate effect. The immediate effect was in the administration of Teddy Roosevelt, but it became even more pronounced in the administration of Woodrow Wilson, which was transformative, especially during the war state. From that point on, the academics and the activists began to pour out of the universities and into bureaucratic positions in government, as well as to think tanks and organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation or the many that the Rockefeller Foundation funded. What happened was this, this uh, outflow of, of liberals formed a tireless army working behind the scenes, writing legislation and scheming of ways to get it passed as soon as possible. Now, one of these guys, for example, was a man named Harry Hopkins. He was a close advisor to FDR, chairman of the Works Progress Administration overseeing public works, uh, exemplifies this mentality of a ruling elite cramming legislation down the throats of everyone in a time of crisis. And he was quoted in a New York Times article in 1934, obviously right in the middle of the Depression, saying this, you are not going to get health insurance if you expect people to do it voluntarily. I am convinced that by one bold stroke, we could carry the American people along, uh, not only for health insurance, but also for unemployment insurance. I think it could be done in the next 18 months. And again, that was Harry Hopkins. Okay. Now, FDR did get his Social Security Act passed in 1935. Uh, but unlike Bismarck and unlike what Hopkins wanted, he only got through the one main piece of legislation, which was social welfare uh, for old age and retirement and disability, what we call Social Security today. The bureaucrats and the activists, however, continued working behind the scenes. They had drawn up the law to begin with, and they still had much more in mind, and they just had to wait, essentially, until they, a time when they could get it passed. And in the meantime, Social Security was being challenged in the Supreme Courts. So interestingly, uh, just as an aside, I want to tell you this story. The original bill, as introduced, actually included a mandate for the lawmakers to begin working immediately on similar measures for health insurance. Uh, but that was written out during one of the final committees. And that meant that Congress expressly removed this authorization for congressional studies from the original Social Security Act. Uh, but uh, So Congress didn't want it, but it didn't stop the activists. And Congress made one very important oversight. Uh, in all of the things that it cut out, it forgot to remove three very important words, quote, and related matters, which was, uh, became a precedent for at least one activist whose name was Isidore Falk, a very important guy. And he leveraged that phrase to be a statutory authority to continue conducting researches and publications in the name of Congress regarding health insurance and other forms of social control. And in fact, the socialist bureaucrats didn't even wait until the Supreme Court ruling. They had already written papers and legal uh, documents ready to go into Congress for consideration while that was the case. Marjorie Sheeran, who was an insider at the time to one of the bureaucrats, 
uh, and who, by the way, later repented of what she had done, defected, and wrote a very good book about it on Wilbur Cohen, relates uh, this. She says, quote, with the validation of the Social Security Act, the bureaucratic world within the agency went wild. Expansionist plans hidden in desk drawers and files up to that time came out boldly into the open. So she tells us what happened. Immediately after the Supreme Court validated the act in 1937, Sheeran writes that her boss, who was Isidore Falk, um, uh, turned to her and said this. He said, quote, I want you to study and make yourself an expert in compulsory health insurance. Old age and unemployment insurance are now here to stay. They will be modified and expanded. But health insurance will be the great new advance in social insurance. It's the coming thing, and we will draft the new laws. So these guys were quite conscious in what they were doing. In 1946, Falk went on to publish a booklet in the congressional record called Medical Care Insurance. And Sheeran describes this book as the uh, Mein Kampf of the nationalization of health insurance in, or at least the nationalization of American medicine. And it contains, she says, quote, the most comprehensive description of the plans to capture every aspect of health and medical care in this country that has ever been published. It explained the necessity of federal control of personal health services, the unification of preventative and curative services, medical education, medical research, hospitals, and health centers, everything all under the control of one agency, and uh, though not stated explicitly, there was the implication that one man would be the czar of medicine, Isidore Falk. The goal was a total socialized state, and of course they were ahead of their time. Didn't happen until much later, but it did happen. Well, almost. Uh, but the goal was a total socialized state. One lady named Jane Hoey, who was the director of the Social Security Board's Bureau of Public Assistance, published her own book that was called Common Human Needs, and she stated the socialization aspect very plainly. She wrote this, quote, Social Security and public assistance programs are a basic essential for the attainment of the socialized state envisaged by democratic ideology, which means Marxist ideology, a way of life which so far has been realized only in slight measure. So from this we learn at least two things. First, the people who wrote and published those laws saw them plainly as measures of socialism, a socialized state. And secondly, they're never satisfied until they reach a fully socialized state. And until then, they keep working, and the end justifies the subversive, lying, elitist means they use to get to that end. Now, this brings up an important factor of leftist ideology and practice which we should all be aware, and it's the idea of the ratchet effect. If leftists can't get the full plan they want, then they'll fight for as much of it as they can get, knowing that once it's in place, people will be addicted to the benefit, and as much as they can put in place will never then be rescinded. Okay? And then that spot forms the starting point for the next piece of legislation. And this is how many of them view their work in explicit terms. One of the most prominent socialists of that era probably was Sidney Webb, was one of the Fabian socialists over in England as over a century ago. Uh, said it very openly. He said this, quote, 
No nation, having once nationalized or municipalized any industry, has ever retraced its steps or reversed its action. Okay. And this is exactly what we find in the socialized takeover of America. Socialism by small, creeping increments. The major encroachments, of course, we can date them. They come in 1935 with Social Security. They come in 1965 with Medicare expansion. And now we also have to add uh, Bush's expansion of Medicare in 2003 to multiple billions of dollars, Obamacare in 2010. But even these major increments don't really tell the whole story. Okay? If you really want to tell the story, you have to go all the way back to the 1840s and Indian pacification. Okay? And that's where the slippery slope began. And it really accelerated during the Civil War when after the Civil War, Union veterans who had been wounded in battle were given handouts. Okay? But that wasn't good enough. Then they said, well, well the wid widows and orphans of veterans need handouts as well. Well, then it was all Union veterans, and then all of their families, and then all of their extended families, and pretty soon the labor union said, hey, why is it just the soldiers? We're, we're in recession. We should get some handouts too. And so they began to use agitation. Okay, and then of course by the time you get to World War I and Wilson's war state centralized everything and set a precedent for what was to become after that, and we could tell that in detail. It was creeping increments creeping increments, little here, a little there, and finally the trap is sprung tightly closed. Okay, we've taken the cheese and we're stuck in the trap. Except it doesn't have to be a trap. There is still a beginning of a way out. Now under point one of this project, as we said, we covered education. And we discussed how that's one area where we still have essentially complete control. And we can and should take control of that liberty that we have there, liberty. Uh, point two, which we're talking about today, which is the welfare state, is very similar in this regard. Now, aside from the taxes that are extracted from us in order to maintain that government-run scheme, we are still at liberty to, to save for ourselves for old age. We're still at liberty to buy insurance of all different sorts freely. Now, the major exception to that, of course, is Medicare and the limitations caused by Medicare laws that for health insurance people over 65 effectually have little to no private insurance options and are therefore essentially forced to be dependent on the system. But other than this, uh, if, with sacrifice, with self-discipline, we can take back a large portion of the freedom uh, under our own control and we can begin to plan for a day when the benefit does not exist and we can talk about the practical steps we can take to get there and the sacrifices we'll have to, to make in order to go through that process in the next talk.